Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, I'm Julia Pastel, in for Colin McEnroe. Today's show was a labyrinth of literature. I have this Rasputin obsession, so I wanted to do a show about that because I'm a huge nerd. Uh, but when we were planning the show, in our studies, we came across an 800-page book that I was told I have to read before we can do it, so we were stuck without a show. But as if he was reading our minds, the renowned mentalist, the amazing Kreskin, suddenly became available for interviews. He and I will be talking in the second half of the show about his work and his long career reading body language to find out what's in the mind and his new tour that starts next week. And because mentalists don't have a lot of time to hang out on the radio, we needed someone else for me to nerd out with. So the first person I thought of was this crazy guy, Rick Ring, who hired me once to write a Lord of the Rings parody about a rare books library. He is my perfect guest, and he is here with me. Welcome to the Colin McEnroe Show, Rick. I am neither Colin McEnroe nor you, Rasputin. Welcome. Thank you very much. I am absolutely pleased to be here. So thank you so much for coming over from Trinity College, just uh, down the down the road here in Hartford, um, from the Watkinson Library. So one thing that um, I discovered when I found the Watkinson and found you is that most people don't even really know what it is. So can you tell us what the Watkinson Library is, where it is, and how long it's been around? Sure. I hope uh, we've been remedying that problem slowly but surely. But yes, the Watkinson actually is the rare book and special collections library of the Trinity College Library. So it's a library within a library, and it actually existed outside of Trinity College for 86 years. It was downtown in the Wadsworth Athenaeum from 1866 to 1952. All right, great. And so why did it move? Why did it move to Trinity? What happened there? So um, when it was founded, it was really supposed to be the research library for the Connecticut Historical Society, which was also down at the Wadsworth Athenaeum at that time. Over the period of decades after World War One and the Depression, there were uh, some struggles with money. And so it was, as we say today, an unsustainable model. They started looking around for partners, and University of Connecticut wanted it, and the Hartford Public Library wanted it. But Trinity sort of raised a lot of money and had cash in hand. (laughs) And also the trustees really wanted it to stay in Hartford. So at that point, Trinity had about 220,000 volumes. The Watkinson was 130,000 volumes. So it was a huge gift to the school. Wow, awesome. So, I mean, cash in hand is is really important for that kind of acquisition because, as I now know, the collection is unbelievable. There are some really unusual pieces in there spanning a huge amount of time. Um, how how far back does the collection go? And what tell us about a couple of your favorite pieces in there. Essentially, it's about a thousand years of human endeavor um, recorded in printed and manuscript books. We do have a couple of things that predate that, uh, a cuneiform tablet dating from 2200 B.C. that I bought a couple of years ago just as an example of early early writing, 
Um, but mostly we have from the medieval period to the present about 200,000 volumes, as you said. Um, some of the really high spots that I often like to talk about are, you know, when Napoleon invades Egypt, he brings 200 savants, uh, scientists and artists, etc., and they record everything they could see, uh, and they published a series of works, all called The Description of Egypt, over the course of 20 years. Um, it's 36 volumes. It's amazing. Uh, and it really is the cornerstone of Egyptology. Um, another book that we have is uh, uh, Denis Diderot's Encyclopedia, which was the last work in the Enlightenment to claim to hold all of human knowledge. Wow. Uh, it's a lovely, uh, lovely set. And I could go on and on. Oh, I want you to. This is geeking out with Julia. Um, so one of the objects that is so beautiful and amazing as soon as you walk into the library is the Audubon book. So can you tell us about that and um, how you guys display it? Because there's a really neat uh, element to its exhibition. Sure. Um, there are several institutions across the United States that have these amazing books and uh However, no one has the engraver's copy. We have Robert Havel's copy, who uh, who engraved the plates to to print the book, um, and we got the book in 1900 by uh, gift of an alumni, Dr. Gurdon Russell, who was a worker for Aetna for years and years. Anyway, um, this was given to us as the cornerstone of a natural history collection, and. Um, you know, it really is uh, beautiful. We turn the page once a week. It takes us eight and a half years to get to the through the entire book. Uh, and we do have people coming in every week to see the new bird and to sit down and, um, you know, look at it and research it and that sort of thing. So pop quiz, what is the bird right now? I could not tell you. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, how many times have you made it all the way through the book? So we started in 2011, so I'll tell oh. you in, I don't know, 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, Rick, how did, you, how did you get into the world of rare books? What's well, your origin story? <laughs> briefly, when I, I know I'm going back far, but when oh. I was 10, we moved out way out, way out into the country. And the only avenue I really had was books. This was pre-internet. This was pre-cable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was just very rural Ohio, and uh, the trips to the public library were my mainstay. So uh, books were always sort of in my in my blood and around me. Um, I decided I wanted to be an English professor, and uh, that morphed into when I went to Indiana University to um, talk to the curator there on the suggestion of one of my uh, English professors. He took me into the stacks and showed me amazing rarities, and I said, what do I have to do to do this? <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I went to Skidmore, and they also have a rare books library, um, and I, I remember the first time I went in there and I was forced to research, forced, you know, assigned to research uh, the yellow books um, of Oscar Wilde's time and it was just so exciting to realize that uh, many colleges have these amazing collections that very few students ever get to interact with. That's true. I mean, most college libraries, uh, most colleges, their rare book collections started in the president's office as a cabinet collection. Hmm. And as they grew, um, mostly this happened after World War II because that's when a lot of institutional money came in with the GI Bill, et cetera. 
So all of a sudden people started to separate out their rare books. But the reason Trinity is so huge, it's two to three times the size of any sister school's special collections, is because of this gift of a, a whole library. And so, Wow. So would you say the Watkinson is the best? Is it one of the foremost? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's tough to say because I'm sure someone will call in and say, wait a minute. Um, but I think it's the best. So, And I, I certainly try to promote it such. Sure. So, you know, one thing that is really interesting to me is, you know, we think of libraries sometimes in our culture as really static environments, but it seems like you're always going out and acquiring new books and you always have some dream books you're trying to get. So when we met a couple of years ago, you were in the middle of uh, acquiring a Leaves of Grass edition. Is that right? That's right. So I tried, I had an experiment that I wanted to uh, to try. I wanted to see if I could unite the campus and the alumni around what I would call a big fish. Mm-hmm. And so I I have relationships with rare book dealers all over the world, and one of them had, believe it or not, two copies of uh, Walt Whitman's the 1855 first edition, Brooklyn, of Leaves of Grass. One of them was $75,000, and the other one was 150000 Okay, so what accounts for that discrepancy, just condition of the book? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of very small things that private collectors, and private collectors drive these prices. Institutions Mm. generally don't. Institutions can't usually compete with the money of a private collector. And certainly we can't compete with the larger institutions' budgets. But I wanted to see if we could really pull the campus together. And so they, the book dealer, lent me the cheaper copy. Um, It was fine for my purposes. And uh, we did a marathon reading of, um, um, wow, I'm blanking on the the (laughs) most famous Whitman poem ever. Song of Myself. I think that must be it. Uh, But anyway, we we did a marathon reading with faculty and students. Um, We did a lot of different uh, engaging activities, including printing some Whitman letterpress at Hartford Prince, which is a local Mm -hmm. letterpress shop. And so uh, we finally did raise the money through private donations and grants to get that book on campus. Awesome. So I'm talking with Rick Ring, and we are taking your calls if you have any burning questions for a rare books librarian. I have many, <laughs> but you are welcome to call in at 860-275-7266. Okay, so Rick, um, I also want to ask you about um, – there was a Bible down there um, the, the last time I visited you. So can you tell me about some of the religious works you guys have and um, how how you came to acquire those? A lot of the works came by gift. Uh, a lot of these collections do, uh, you know, accept gifts, and donors are a huge part of the munificence of, of libraries. So I can't really tell you the history. I mean, I can always look it up, mm-hmm. but uh, the two— favorite Bibles that I have are the King James Bible, the first edition, 1611, which was a, a, a really a state-supported project. It was a, a translation by committee. It's a fabulous story, but it's a huge book. Most people think of the King James Bible as things that you have on your bedside, but this is for the altar, so it's quite large. And <laughs> the other one that I love, well, two are two polyglot Bibles, which are multiple translations in side-by-side array. So you can have the Latin, the Greek, Turkish, Armenian, Arabic. It's fascinating to see these incredible productions 
of biblical scholarship. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about the book as a physical object itself, too, because some of these things in the library are so beautiful um, or unusual looking. So are there books that are made of things that would be surprising or anything like that, anything where the object itself is worth collecting, even if the text is not? Well, a lot of the 19th century pictorial bindings are really fun to look at the way the design is. And there have been many people working on um, cataloging those and exploring the designs. There are older, very, very heavy sort of Harry Potter-like tomes with metal clasps and uh, pigskin bindings and um, and literally boards for covers. That's why the term boards was begun, because they actually, in, in the 15th century and 16th century, they were they were bound in wooden covers. And um, so there's there's a lot of uh, different kinds of things. We don't have, I don't think, jewel bindings, although there are, I think I did get a gift of a small Bible bound in pearl, mother of pearl. So you can find all sorts of things, deer skin, all sorts of wow. things. Wow. The idea of a half a century old book bound in skin of any kind is <laughs> just so repulsive and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, there are some libraries that have uh, books bound in human skin. Generally, that's pretty disgusting. It's also, I think, almost against the law. But anyway, it's, it's uh, you know, human remains are kind of sacred, so um, you don't want to usually uh, promote those. And honestly, human skin is a pretty bad binding material. Mm, good to know. Good to know for all of us <laughs> out there binding our own books. Um, so, Rick, are there any um, – tell us about uh, the student projects that get done. Students often will come in and uh, do projects through the Rare Books Library. So tell us about some of the things that students have chosen to focus on in the Watkinson. Sure. One of the programs we started in 2011 is called the Creative Fellowship Program, which is an award for projects – done based or inspired by the special collections. And so over the years, we've had about 30 students go through this program. And um, the they the projects range from one girl actually used Paris fashion plates to create uh, a period dress. Another girl um, did a history of chocolate in the Spanish Empire, drawing maps and um, making recipe guides, etc. There was a, a young man who was a music major who cut a CD, which was based on a French manuscript, early 19th century, of popular songs that I had just purchased that uh, that year. So they, the projects run all the gamut of, it's basically I let the students decide what they want to do. I kind of talk them through their project goal. They usually come thinking they're going to write a paper and I say, well, you're, you really write too many papers. You should take this opportunity to create something that is your own and uh, take it with you when you go. And oftentimes this has led to jobs for the, the kids because they're very unique uh, portfolio pieces. Yeah, that's so interesting because so much of the college experience is taking the outside world and analyzing it and putting on paper. And this assignment is actually the reverse. It's saying let's take these texts and turn them into something else in the real world. Well, I think that the ultimate sustainability idea that I think special collections should pursue is as a source for inspiration. 
that's a great note to take a break on. Um, I'm Julia Pistel in for Colin McEnroe. And after a quick break, we're going to talk more on rare books, the Watkinson Library and the life of a librarian. We'll be right back. I'm Julia Pastel in for Colin McEnroe. My guest is Rick Ring, head curator and rare books librarian at the Watkinson Library at Trinity College. Later in the show, the amazing Kreskin will join me to talk mentalism. But first, we're still on rare books and really, really interesting stuff going on at Trinity College. Um, and we actually have a call. So, Rick, are you ready to take it? Absolutely. All right. Let's see. Hi, Barbara. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Barbara's from Rocky Hill. Uh, Barbara, what's your question? So uh, I'm a, a retired librarian, so we always have questions, and we like to answer them and ask them. Fabulous. <laughs> so uh, I'm particularly interested in Connecticut authors, particularly Madeline Lenkel, who wrote Wrinkle in Time. Mm -hmm. So is that anything there at the Rare Book Library would ever be considering collecting those kinds of goodies? Absolutely. We recently got a gift of about a 1,000 science fiction magazine pulps from the 40s to the 80s by a a professor's mother who was a big fan in the 60s. I think science fiction collecting is huge, and women's fiction, all of, all of that will be very collectible already. Yeah. I mean, uh, thank you, Barbara. It's such a great question because it starts to get at what I wanted to talk about earlier uh, anyway, which is how do we decide what is collectible and whose stories are being told? Well, often the trade decides what's collectible. I mean, in in the sense that people who start buying something, dealers will pay attention to that, and then all of a sudden the prices will start rising. What I would say to collectors is, you know, start with something that you love and that is cheap. Um, It's a nice way of really starting a collection. Some book collectors, you know, want to do first modern first editions, and and they want to go after what we call high spots, these very famous and um, expensive books. But I teach a class on the world of rare books, and we talk a lot about collecting. And so uh, it really, anything is collectible. Yeah, and uh, as to Barbara's question, you know, science fiction has risen so much in its worth in pop culture in the last half century. So I imagine that's a big, hot hot topic in the area of rare books. Yes, it can be. (laughs) I mean, um, certainly initially... Uh, with J.R.R. Tolkien, who popularized sort of epic fantasy. And then, of course, with uh, J.K. Rowling, with the Harry Potter series, which really drove a tremendous... I mean, if you look at the shelves of young adult fiction now, it almost is all fantasy, science fiction, horror. So that genre has become, you know, so massive, or those those genres have become so massive and, of course, that kind of energy produces collectors. Okay. I've got another call uh, along the same lines. Uh, and Ed from Norwich, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, Ed, uh, what's your question? Well, fascinating show. I'm Thank you. So, uh, happy with it. Great presentation, too. Thank you. It reminds me how uh, world-class uh, Connecticut is in so many ways. And um, it's great to hear about that science fiction uh, donation you received. And I'm wondering if there's any... Um, 
thing about fanzines. Did you cover any uh, like self-published fanzines through the decades? We do have some zines, but that is certainly an area that I will be looking to build because it is a very popular thing for the faculty to teach about. We have some faculty teaching about zines, and, you know, it's a mix of art and printing and, you know, literature. It's Zines have a, a real sort of cult following, and again, any kind of energy like that is going to create a lot of collectors. Yeah, and now that reminds <laughs> that brings me back to the 19th century um, and a story I wanted to ask you about because you had mentioned to us that often um, the the book tells a story in and of itself. So can you tell us about this amazing piece you guys have in your collection of a whaling log that actually tells another very famous literary story within it? <laughs> well, I think that, so to be fair, that whaling log is at a, another one of the institutions that I worked sure, in. So, sure, sure. Um, but I think I was telling the story because it is such an interesting story and we have the the Stowe House here. So when this whaling log was in the Providence Public Library. It is a, a log that was kept on a whaling voyage, handwritten, um, which we bought, which I bought it, uh, you know, for quite a bit of money, but because it was such a literary thing. And in it, there you can see the history of basically the global blockbuster bestseller of Uncle Tom's Cabin which was published, I believe, in 1853, although some I don't have my Wikipedia here. <laughs> but basically, it was published after the ship left New Bedford and was on its way to the Pacific. But the people on ship on the ship were reading it within a year of their voyage because they were, as they were meeting ships going back and forth, carrying mail, etc., cetera, uh, the book was literally racing across the, gl- the globe. So, um, and they were talking about it. And, you know, if you've read anything about um, the popularity of Stowe's novels, you know that that so many people were just riveted. I mean, they have stories of, you know, servants going out back and, and ignoring their, you know, duties to read the book, et cetera. So it's a, it's a wonderful kind of tale about – I mean, you can find in these documents the, the, the story of the spread of this kind of literature. That is so amazing. I mean, whaling logs in and of themselves are fascinating, but you know, we always think of these historical uh, pieces as as individual rather than intersecting in all these amazing ways. So that's just such a cool story. I, I love that. Um, so, what do you think? Um, what do you think Hartford or Connecticut at large should be collecting now? You know, do we have a collector's mindset? What do we need to be saving? Well, bear in mind that. Collecting takes a fair amount of, you know, resources and preserving, certainly, and providing access to it. So that's, you know, when we take in a collection, it's kind of like a marriage. You you take in a collection with the promise that you will always have it and you will always promote it and take care of it. So, um, but what I don't see happening, or and I don't know if this is happening, so I'm sorry if I've offended mm-hmm. anybody that I don't know about, but what I don't see happening is... Um, the people that are living here now or in the last 50 years or so, their cultures, their businesses, their activities, I don't see, you know, any real effort sort of citywide or statewide to collect their stories. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the old 19th century uh, stuff being collected and promoted. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that's happened since, you know, 1890. So I think uh, maybe we should 
really start thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting. Connecticut is so historically focused, you know, and we have this amazing civil rights history, and yet we're also living through such a racially charged moment in our country, and there's so much we could be collecting and recording and organizing now rather than focusing all of our efforts on what was happening in the 50s or back in Twain and Stowe's time. I mean, those all tell one long Connecticut story. Absolutely. And I mean, another other, of course, of the big challenges is how do you collect digital records and how do you preserve them? Because as we can certainly put all the Twitter feeds and all the websites and that sort of thing on servers, but we also know that servers uh, degrade and those that isn't the best archival place necessarily for born digital items. Okay, I'm going to take one more call here. Um, I have Billy from Middletown. Uh, Billy, are you there? Yes, I am. I am. Um, you know, I, I love hearing about this stuff. Uh, I, sometimes I think I'm a uh, medieval Irish monk who is reincarnated because <laughs> I'm always preserving books. You're right. illuminating um, your manuscripts. <laughs> I am. I, I've been collecting for 30 years. My house looks like a, like a library. I've got all leather-bound books and first editions and things like that. And um, people think you have to be rich to collect books, but if you if you know how to do it, you can you can get bargains and you can wheel and deal. And you know, I've got first editions of books that you know are worth a lot of money. Um, you know, Mark Twain, uh, Tom Sawyer, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know. You were talking about um, preserving things. I, a couple of years ago, I was going by the uh, Wesleyan Library, and they had a dumpster outside. You wouldn't believe the books they were throwing out. And I asked the librarian about it, and I said, well, we've got all this stuff on, um, you know, on, uh, on uh, line, all digital and things like that. I said, but these books are are amazing. They had books on folklore and from the 1800s and things like that just throwing them out. But I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just love it. I love the feel and the smell of a old book. Or I love uh, having a, a modern first edition that I know is going to be uh, 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 influential in some way. Sure. So I, I think that's a great question. Thank you, Billy. Is, how do we know when we're out of space and how do you make those calls? Do you ever feel that weight and that pressure of what to do with your ever expanding collection? Of course we do. Mm -hmm. We have whole conferences devoted to this issue. Uh, we really? have meetings after. Oh, absolutely. Conferences on throwing away books. We have conferences mm -hmm. on shared responsibility, um, mm -hmm. last copy mm -hmm. issues. Uh, we have consortia that try to um, coordinate the the uh, the saving of of this stuff and one of the things that you should just remember is that first of all institutions exist in in time and space and have pressures of their own to deal with no institution i don't care how rich even the library of congress which is the largest library in the world cannot keep everything library of congress takes in maybe 14,000 items a day they only keep half of them wow um so it, it's it's uh there are literally billions of books out there, and we we save what we can given our mission. Uh, and you know, you you have to basically make very hard decisions sometimes about what you really need to sort of save and pr promote, and what you don't. And so, 
I, that's all I have to say. I, I definitely would like to talk further about that. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's got to be something that you think about every single day. And as librarians turn over to, you know, passing down that, that value system of what the institution has decided to keep. So what book uh, or books would you sell your soul to get into the library? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? What do you have your eye on? Well, I guess... Um, I would really love a first folio of Shakespeare. That is, uh, we classic. actually we actually have a second folio that I that I was able to acquire, which is the the, the second edition, which is great. Um, but it's a five million dollar book. It's not likely that I'll be able to get that from you know with my budget. That, How many are there? How many first folios are there? Out there are there? probably a hundred and sixty or so from a, an initial press run of maybe seven hundred and fifty. Wow. And most of them are at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. All right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. And are there any other particular, like as we were talking about the, the pulp and the fanzines, are there any other unusual kind of books or things that we might not even think about uh, as books that belong in the library that you would like to start to acquire? Things, not books that I would like well, to acquire. Well, what's the next, you know, what's the next level of acquisitions? So most of what we try to acquire are the papers of, you know, distinguished alumni that have had mm. distinguished careers, that sort of thing, um, and manuscript material. Uh, recently I bought a series of Hartford Currents that were bound together uh, from the 1840s, which we didn't have. Mm-hmm. We have on a microphone, but that's not the same thing as actually getting the, the paper. Um, but most those manuscript collections and those basically the the files and the pictures and the diaries that record some person's career um, that, you know, that they distinguish themselves in is very uh, compelling to us. And certainly, you know, other libraries like the University of Texas, the Harry Ransom Center, they've made uh, a long tradition. They've had a, a long tradition of collecting authors' papers. Um, and so like major mm. authors like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Ernest Hemingway. So those are the kinds of archives that places like this are going to be looking for. Wow. How interesting. Um what is a student project coming up? Do you have any – I know you have a whole new batch of students, and they must be so excited. Um, so what are their favorite objects, or what are they going to be working on? Right. Semester? So I'm just going to have to remember here. Let's see. <laughs> um, I do have one one woman – young woman is is looking at pictures of Trinity over the last 10 decades, and she's then creating a series of cartoon scenes that evoke each decade uh, of a Trinity student's life. So that's, you know, one that she's working with the archives of the college. And then um, I believe and, uh, a guy named Andrew is is going to be looking at a lot of our uh, bird illustrations. And I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember exactly what he was going to be doing, but he's going to be working with our ornithology collection, which is huge. We have about 7,000 books on birds uh, that were given to us in the 80s. And so it's a fascinating, fascinating collection. Cool. So, Rick, what is your advice for people who want to get into this sort of work, the people who are listening and now just veering off the road saying, I got to change jobs, I got to be a rare books librarian? Sure. If you want a career in libraries, you generally have to get a master's in library science, and you can go to Simmons College, you can go to the American Library Association website and look at the list of accredited schools. 
And if you just want to work in a library, you can come to the Watkinson and volunteer if you like. But but I would suggest volunteering at a local library or historical society. Mm, awesome. Yeah. And so many historical societies have these collections, too. It's a good way. Yeah. And what is what if you could go back and give yourself some piece of advice when you were that young nerd starting out? What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself, don't take out student loans. <laughs> oh, Rick, that, <laughs> that is that, really hilarious. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so one thing I'm realizing is that uh, we think of libraries as something you know, f- shut up. Uh, to the the public or at rare books libraries, can people visit the Watkinson and how do they do that? Absolutely. Anybody can walk in to the Watkinson Monday through Friday, 830 to 430. Um, we're open to any Hartford or Connecticut resident, any adult, basically, you have to be 18. Uh, we do have classes coming in and, and that sort of thing. But we are at public. We have a mandate to be a public library of Hartford. So anybody mm-hmm. can come in. Mm-hmm. And I can attest it's just so beautiful and so, so cool. Um, so, Rick, just finishing up here, we've just got one or two more minutes. What are what do you find is the biggest joy working in the library? What's the first thing you do when you come in every day? Well, the first thing I do, I, I think I'll answer the first question because really the biggest joy is connecting uh, people who have never seen some of this stuff with materials that they never knew that they were interested in, never knew existed, and then to see the, the light of understanding or in, you know, sort of intriguing um, drive to understand what they, they're seeing and the beauty of the, of the uh, material. Mm-hmm. Um, and are, have you guys ever, this just occurred to us, our producers are asking, have you ever had any big catastrophes in the workplace? Has anything ever been ruined at the Watkinson? So not on my watch yet. I'm going to knock on wood. <laughs> good, but good, yes, good. we've had pipes burst. We've had um, sort of imploding air handler type things. We've had spikes in humidity. Um, you know, a building is a kind of a living, breathing thing. And so we monitor everything, the temperature, humidity. We have flood detectors. We're, we're always on it to make sure that that this asset of the college uh, is maintained. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for everything that you do. And it is so cool. And I invite everybody to go down and visit uh, Rick down at the Watkinson. And what's we, that? we are having an open house tomorrow. <laughs> oh, plug away. So we have <laughs> we are celebrating our 150th anniversary of service to Hartford and the community. So you want to have a little cider and cookies and see some rare books, come on down. Perfect. Do not spill your cider on the Audubon. Don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so uh, so much. We're going to take a, a quick break. Uh, and after that break, we're going to talk to the amazing Kreskin. And yes, that is actually his legal name. And you can call in with questions for him at 860-275-7266. Today's show was produced by Julia Pistel, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by the great Buck Howard. On tomorrow's show, The Nose has seen Oliver Stone's Snowden movie and hates that it has to care about Brangel Exit. And now, back to Julia. 
The Amazing Kreskin is a mentalist who has been part of the public consciousness since his first television appearance on The Mike Douglas Show in 1968. Since then, Kreskin has performed on just about every talk show on the air, and he hosted two TV series of his own in the 70s. Next week, at age 81, he'll kick off his new tour, Will the Real Kreskin Please Stand Up, with eight performances in six days at the Producers Club in Times Square. So before we talk to him, here's a clip of Kreskin on Late Night with David Letterman in 1990. How many cards do you have in your hand? Oh, two, four, six, eight, ten. Uh, Thirteen. If I name any card, take it out of the deck. Okay. You have an eight of hearts? Go fish. Do <laughs> um, you have an eight of in your hand? Yes, I do, Kreskin. Take it out. Is that uh, from the left part of your hand? Yes, it is. What, right next to that, the two of spades? Yes, it is. You're looking out of seven of clubs? Yeah, I am. Nine of diamonds? Yes, I am, Kreskin. Uh, I can't get it. It's a club. It's, it's either an eight or a nine. Which is it? Well, you tell me, big shot. <laughs> it is an eight of clubs. Uh, Dave, uh, do you have in your hand two kings which are near each other? Yes, I do, Kreskin. Take out the ace of diamonds that's between them. Oh, look at that. How does he do that? Look, there, there they are, right there king, between. King of spades, king of hearts. How yeah. many cards left? All right, they're all out. Uh, we have three left, Kreskin. I'll right, tell you uh, what. Eight of diamonds. Okay. Three of spades? Uh, y yes. Last of ten? Ten, ten of hearts. Ten of, there it is, ten of hearts. Ten of hearts. All right, we should have on the line the amazing Kreskin. Are you there? Hello. Hi. Is, is, how are is is this Julia? Yes, it is. This is Julia. Julia, how do you? You know, I get I get so impressed. You are digging up shows that I don't even have copies of. My, I think I think I should hire your crew <laughs> here. Although I have a feeling, folks, because the show is live and she can't erase this. But hearing the flavor and the kind of and all the stuff that you put on, I think that uh, you folks not only are very warm, empathetic, but flaky as well. Because those are the only interesting people around flaky. I'm going to tell you that, and that's a compliment. Thank you so much. <laughs> Never been so happy to be called flaky. In my you, know, life. you know, you know, Julie. And then, and then if I can become quasi-serious, because uh, uh, in this day and age of the politically correct syndrome that's just going, and, and some of the comedians, uh, Seinfeld has, will not be working, announced, I couldn't even believe this, two months ago, he's not going to be working some colleges because they now edit the uh, topics that a comedian can satire and what have you. Sure, yes. It's not... This is not the flavor of this country. I have a. I'm sitting in my office here, and I'm 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 on the road because I'm only home about four days a month. But I have a sign here in the office that says, "If anybody ever calls me politically correct, kick me in the ass," because we have even. And I grew up as a little kid in the Second World War, but you had people like uh, Bob Hope and so forth satirizing even the worst enemies and what have you, because that's the freedom of our thinking, if you know what I mean. I didn't mean to get Yeah, that. well, no, that's topic. all right. I mean, I think this actually gets to some of the things I wanted to ask you about. So you've been a mentalist for a long time. and Yes, you, all what, my life. Yes, all your life since you were a teenager, right? So tell us about, well, yeah, tell us about that. Go ahead. You know what happened? Uh, the uh, When I was, um, when, when I was uh, in, in third grade and nine years old and uh, and Miss Curtis was the teacher, and it was raining outside. And she said to the classmates, "You know, you, we can't you can't go out and play, but I'm going to teach you a game." And she sent one of my classmates out. I can remember to this day it was Jane Hamilton. And while Jane was out of the classroom, she took they handed us a bean bag and we hid it 
in one of the desks, one of our desks. And then she called Jane in and said, Jane, we're going to play a game, uh, hot and cold. You walk around, there's a beanbag hidden. If you get near it, we'll say you're getting hot. If you're not near it, you say you're getting cold. If you're getting real near it, you say you're getting, you're really very hot. It's an old game called hot and cold. Well, I wasn't picked to play this, and it bugged me, and I, I was disappointed. I'm walking home that day, and my brother was three years younger. And and I got home, but my mother was shopping and my father was at work. So I said, Joe, let's go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house. They were from Sicily. They didn't speak much English. We were very, very close. And they, they built a house there. He built his own hands, rented the downstairs to make ends meet. I said, Joe, here's a penny. Go upstairs and hide the penny. So he went upstairs, and I'm standing outside. And finally, I see him at the top of the steps in the in the staircase. And he says, come on up. I walk upstairs. I walk into the old-fashioned kitchen. My grandmother didn't know what was going on. I walk through the kitchen. I walk into my uncle's bedroom. He's at work. And I climbed up to on a chair because I, I was only a kid. I was short. And I found myself reaching behind the uh, a curtain rod, and I suddenly felt the penny. And then it suddenly dawned on me. I forgot. I forgot to tell my brother to talk to me. He never said anything. He never did anything. He didn't know what it was all about. I didn't say anything to him. And something made me wander through the kitchen, go into another room, climb up, and so forth. The irony of it is that was the beginning that got all over the family. And in fourth and sixth grade, my teacher, Miss Galloway, kept having me in show-and-tell on Fridays experiment with my classmates. I was performing already when I was 12 years old. I wasn't doing the kind of work I was doing now, but I was starting to perform. And and now, in all my performances, and this will be taking place next week, beginning uh, next Tuesday at the Producers Club each each night, I will pick, and I'm the only one in the world that does this, and picture you being there and seeing this scenario. I'll pick a half a dozen people from the audience. They must they must guarantee they do not know me if they've never spoken to me. I will hand them my check. I will hand them my fee for that night. Part of the committee will then escort me from the theater. If I'm at a, uh, at a at a gymnasium and I'm appearing in a gymnasium, we go out of the theater. If I'm appearing at a state fair outdoors, like Minnesota, eight, uh, eight, uh, Minnesota State Fair was 11,000 people. The Oregon State Fair, fair was 20-some uh, thousand. So they took me and put me in a trailer that was on the stage and closed the doors with people inside sure. of me, and the doors were all sealed. The bottom line is I'll be out of the theater. Uh, next week, each night at the Producers Club, they will hide my check anywhere within the theater. I will be called back in. There will be no guessing game. I will not ask a single question. The committee is simply told, concentrate on what you've done. And, Julia, if I do not find my fee, I turn it over to the people who book me, and the show is for free. Now, that's a hell of a sure. way to make a living. Sure. So that's uh, and this is something that you've done many times, as you've mentioned, and I've read about, too. You've done this. By the way, by the way, uh, for years, uh, it, it was noted that I had failed nine times. That's no longer the case. As of a few months ago here in the East Coast at a private event, I failed a tenth time and returned my fee. But that's not many out of six thousand times. And the most famous failure took place in New Zealand. It's been read, written about in books everywhere. I was at a col and I love the country. I was at a Coliseum and during the first week, one of the nights I failed 
and the press came up to me uh, that were in the audience and said, would you hold a press conference tomorrow? You must be upset, but you understand we've just, we've seen you on television, but this is your first time. I said, I'm, I'm a professional. Of course I will. The next morning, it was over a hundred press from all over the country, radio, TV, and, 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 and television and, and newspaper. The reason they held the press conference is when I lost my fee the night before, I lost in one night $51,000. Yes, that is a tragedy <laughs> I think all of our listeners can relate to. So, Crescent, you uh, you have often defined your work as, you know, it's not magic, it's not ESP, it's not psychic. You're using real cues of, of verbal cues and body language in which no. to— Go ahead. I got to explain. I don't really use that. I don't really use body language at all, and I don't use verbal cues. I am a, I, I'm an intuitive person. Mm-hmm. I'm a highly sensitive person, and I have built my life on a career that shows if two people somehow are in close mental communication, you can sense people's feelings and ideas if they concentrate. It isn't it isn't body language at all because I have I have often been I don't even often see the people whose thoughts I am, but but they have to concentrate. The only way I can explain it is this: No, I do not look look into a crystal ball. I find if I look into a crystal ball, and and I mean, I know I'm being sarcastic, but I've looked into a crystal ball, Julia, I get a massive headache. So it doesn't help at all. But uh, one night uh, a year ago at, at the Riviera in, in Vegas, just an example, I mentioned two names. And it was a nightclub audience. I was there for a month or two months. I don't remember. But anyway, this, this, this elderly gentleman stuff, very distinguished-looking man. I said, what are the names? He says, Kreskin, we don't live here. These are our two pet dogs. We love them dearly. And I said, oh, oh fine. I said, can I ask you something? Did you say to your wife – I wonder if Kreskin could tell me my army serial number. Julia, I wish there had been a TV camera there. You'd have to see who's standing, and each of them were sitting at small nightclub tables. He slams his fist down on the table and says, God damn it, he said, I didn't even say this here. We were eating at another restaurant nearby, and it was a few hours ago. I said, who knows your your army uh, serial number? Well, no man or woman will ever forget their serial number. But if you talk to a lot of them in the service, they never talk to their wife or family. They just never – it's just not a number you talk about. He says, I don't even think I ever mentioned it to my wife. Well, three minutes later, Julia, I gave him every single digit in order of his Army number, and he was in World War Two. So very impressive. No, I know I've read about you, and you um, advised uh, a boxer on yes. some. Yes. Could Heather, you tell us? We oh, only have a few is, yes. minutes left. So this go ahead, a, tell us about that. You know, I've walked. I've worked with. Uh, I worked with marksmen. I've worked with uh, people from other areas of sports. I'm. I'm. I'm not a, a, a sport expert, but when Heather came to me a year ago, uh, her 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 manager. Uh, said, you know, uh, I, I, I've studied what you do, Kreskin. I know you're not going to make her stronger. I know you're not going to make, no, none of that stuff. I'm not a great fan of boxing, but I respect and admire. I, I did a lot of TV shows with Muhammad Ali because of him being on cars with me and so forth. But I said, yes, I can help in a certain way. And I worked with her before a number of matches. And then last year, she came to an international match uh, in, in light heavyweight, which she won. 
I was I was brought into the ring after the match. But here's what I trained her to do, and I didn't do this overnight. I I made her from time to time for about 45 minutes to an hour. I trained her mentally. Now I can't tell her to anticipate other other people's thoughts and all that. No, she I can't teach her to do what I do. But I trained her to be so attentive, like you hinted earlier, and sensitive, sure. that she anticipated the physical blows before the person started to deliver them. Probably she saw maybe a glance or the muscles of the person start to move. Now, when you are boxing, you got stress all over the place. But I want to tell you, she became so tuned in that she was able to deflect the blows because the worst thing for a boxer is to be hit in the head because of the brain, of the bouncing and everything else. So she was able to deflect these, and she won, and she won a number of contests, and that's what I trained her to do. It was a very moving thing when the, when the, when the international match was over here in New York City, and they brought me to the stage, and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say much because a lot of the sports people were there and say, Kreskin, how did you make this happen? But it was my training her mentally to be more intuitive to the people she's with. Just as when a person is in love, and I don't, I don't mean this sarcastically, but when a person's in love or has a passion for someone, you can almost anticipate how they're going to think or even react to a certain idea because somehow you've gotten to tune into them. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do, actually. I'm a professional, professional improviser, and we call it group mind. Oh, you understand what I'm yes, talking I about? Yes, I do. I do, actually. Oh, yes. oh, this is a pleasure. to. I want to tell you, it is a pleasure to speak to you. And you, Julia, then you will understand what I'm saying more and more as I travel. And, of course, you, because of the training that you do with people, exemplify this. Julia, and, and, I, and listen to me, folks, and you young people, listen to me. We're not listening to each other as much as we once did. Yes. We're not tuning into each other as much. We're relying too much on a little device called a machine that sits on the table often in front of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And, Kreskin, we just have 30 seconds oh, left. So oh, I just want I, yeah, you Julia, to – yes, go ahead. Julia, uh, you know what I'm going to do? And, by the way, so everybody knows, I'll be at the, uh, at, the at the Producers Club next Tuesday through Saturday. And you can go on www.amazingkreskin.com. Right. Perfect. Thank you but so Julia, much. Well, I'm I'll so sorry. My book. <laughs> yes, look up his book. We will. It was so great talking to you, The Amazing Kreskin. We are so sorry we have to cut you off. Um, you have so many good stories. It's been a great day. Thank you. This is The Colin McEnroe Show.